0: Warning, the following contains spoilers pertaining to the show and subject matter discussed. Also, strong language and adult content may be included. Listener discretion is advised. Thank you. Heaven, I am in heaven and i found the salted meats of which i seek and i'll put them on some rye for us to eat as we walk together kibitzing cheek to cheek
1: (laughs) what is that the deleted songs from fiddler on the roof
0: hey let me have my moment okay i mean this is my heritage well at least half my heritage and what a great heritage it is
1: I'm starting to think your favorite thing about your heritage is, your, is the food
0: I mean, it's not just the food but that is a huge part of it and now that we live in the greatest city in the world I have my spoil of riches when it comes to kosher cuisine I mean, look at all of these cats, delicatessen russum daughters economy, candy Yule Shimmer's Connishery, the New Essex Market, Kozar's Bagels and Bialys, and the Pickle Guys.
1: Ooh, I do love a good pickle. And a good bagel.
0: You can find both and so much more right here in the Lower East Side. Like I said, an embarrassment of riches when it comes to some of the greatest food in the world.
1: So, where do you want to start?
0: I've had my mind on a hot pastrami sandwich all day.
1: So, cats as it is. Welcome to Stage Whisper. I'm your host, Hope Bird, and with me is my co-host, Andrew Cortez.
0: Today, we are going to be discussing the hilarious comedy that is Fish in the Dark.
1: So, hurry and take your seats. It looks like the show is starting.
0: Hello, everyone, and Welcome into today's performance of Stage Whisper. Have you ever gone out to an evening at the theater, planning to escape, only to find the very thing you're trying to escape waiting for you on the stage? Well, don't worry, you aren't alone. Because that was the reaction of thousands of theatergoers as they watched through tears of laughter the painfully comedic show that is the subject of today's show, Fish in the Dark.
1: The show that had audiences rolling in the aisles while forcing them to come face-to-face with real-life issues of their own was a surprise hit that season and left audiences wondering how their own families made it on stage.
0: But before we can continue with all this vagueness, perhaps we should set the table for the main course with a little groundwork.
1: Larry David got the idea for the play from his friend and lawyer, Lloyd Braun. After Braun's father died, David went to visit him. Lloyd said, we're sitting Shiva and Larry's over the first day at my house. And I was telling him a whole bunch of stories of what had gone on for the last few days because some were crazy and hilarious, like a relative flying in from wherever because they wanted to be in show business. It's an outlet for me. We started talking about how it's incredible material. Larry says, it's a Broadway play.
0: Before we can get to the full Broadway production, we must first meet our design team. The playwright was Larry David, director Anna D. Shapiro, scenic designer Todd Rosenthal, costume design by Ann Roth, lighting designer Brian McDevitt, video designer Brad Peterson, sound designers Rob Milburn and Michael Bodine, original music by David Yazbek, wig design by by Alan D'Ingerio, and makeup design by Brian Stromvosser.
1: The show would open at the Court Theater on March 5th, 2015, for a limited engagement. After being extended twice, it would finally close after 173 performances on August 2nd, 2015.
0: The play took in $13.5 million in advance sales at the box office, the highest advance for any spring production on Broadway, and according to the New York Times, beat the previous record for a play $13.05 million for the 2013 revival of Harold Pinter's Betrayal.
1: So let's gather around the table and dig into the drama. in a hospital waiting room. Sydney Drexel, the family patriarch, is dying and assorted family members are coming to pay their last respects and squabble over everything from which son will have to take care of mom to who gets dad's Rolex watch.
0: Brothers Norman Drexel and Arthur Drexel are visiting their father in the hospital along with Norman's wife Brenda and Arthur's girlfriend Michelle. The dying old man makes his two sons promise to let their mother, Gloria, live with one of them for the rest of her life.
1: Of course, no one can tell which brother he was talking to, and it falls on Norman, the socially inept Oaf, and his begrudging wife, Brenda, to take mom in, even though Gloria hates everything about her son's Schicksta spouse.
0: Naturally, Norman manages to alienate just about everyone in his path, with the exception of Fabiana, the longtime family housekeeper who's been harboring a major secret involving her 20-year-old son, Diego. The The end. end. so now let's talk about the parts that we liked maybe didn't like how we felt that we still are owed money for our own stories being put up on the stage you know (laughs) the gist um i found this show to just be dark and offensive and hilarious and i loved it um i remember there were a lot of moments where we both just looked at each other and it was like that is your family it is your family right there on the yeah. stage, and I was like, "Yeah, that's mm-hmm. that's my family." <laughs> <laughs> that's, we've literally had that argument right there, you know, um, and I had—I I don't think I'd ever had such a strong connection like that to a show before, which was interesting. Okay. Um. To a a play. I mean, on TV, I always make that joke of, oh, my gosh, it's my family on TV, right? Mm -hmm. Um, My mom does it all the time with the Goldbergs. Um, But on stage, I didn't have this strong, like, oh, my gosh, that's totally my family, right? You know, no. Two brothers. That was me and my brother. You know, that? yes, yes. All of the above. The chaoticness that goes on, the loudness of everything, the guilt. yeah, Yeah. It was like, oh my gosh.
1: Yeah. I just remember um, not really necessarily knowing what I was going into, um, knowing that it was Larry David and he wrote Seinfeld. I was like, oh, okay, so this isn't necessarily my preferred like form of humor, you know, so we'll see how it goes. And I ended up crying so hard, I or laughing so hard I was crying.
0: Yeah. <laughs> well, and it was... It was clearly Larry, like the doings of Larry David with its dark and hilarious humorous writings. It is a certain kind of humor with it being Seinfeld. And I'm not going to be PC on this. It's a Jewish humor. Yes. It's a Jewish family. It's Jewish humor. It is, uh, even regionally, it's it's New Yorker humor. It's based in New York. It's New Yorker humor. Um, I think if the show were to play in Ames, Iowa, Or, you know, Cheyenne, Wyoming, let's say it may it might have a harder time connecting because there is a lot of reference to a lot of New York things or just personalities that if you are from the city or if you are close or have family or whatnot here, you, you would get more of a connection to it. The best kind of line I can draw between that, honestly, is the Book of Mormon, the musical. Mm-hmm. A lot of people like it's it's accessible for everyone, right? Mm-hmm. But it's especially accessible and funny when it comes through Salt Lake because we just get the jokes a little bit more. Mm-hmm. We find the extra little Easter eggs, and that's what I feel like when I say it's it's got some regional humor to it. But that comes with any show, you know what I mean? Like every show is written from a different perspective, from a different background, but. But but to paint it fairly, that's where this show comes from. And walking hand-in-hand hand with that came the cast, this brilliant, brilliant cast that, I mean, no, having seen Jane Howdy's show, and the number of roles that I've seen her in now, I mean, it kills me that she was the mother in this. Mm-hmm. Because she really is, uh, well... In, per- in person she's not a selfish kind of person like that at all mm-hmm. but you know just to be this i'm the center of attention and me 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 mom, me she knows how to play the character a character like that but make the audience love her if that makes any sense mm-hmm. she you know we all know kind of that annoying mother where you're like "Oh, am mom you know but you can't help but love that character and Jane did a wonderful job at that. Then you got these two brothers who are are just terrible, right? But the reason why we don't hate them is because we so much identify with them. It's insane how much we identify, as well as with um, you know, the wife, the chicks, the wife, you know, who how many times maybe if we've been in a, if we're married or what have you, we don't get along with the in-laws for this that or the other reason. We've been in that position or, of course, the housekeeper that has the big secret. And when the big secret does come out about who's Diego's father. Mm. Uh um, I mean, it just. It's such a relatable story that when the wheels fall off, we all are like, oh, yeah, I've been in that position before when I found out about my father's secret family. What? Oh, yeah. It was Thanksgiving two years ago. Yeah. Oh, it was nothing like this, you know. No, no, no. We (laughs) threw things at each other.
1: We didn't just throw
0: insults. We threw, like, food, you know. Um, So, and with that brilliant cast came these brilliant characters and dynamics that that they brought with them.
1: Right. So that really
0: helped balance everything out.
1: Well, and the fact that, you know, Larry David did say he based these on real people, like that these characters were very real people in his life. Yes. Made it all the better because it made it so realistic
0: well and one thing i really want i love about larry david's writings is he writes works that are you know include these larger than life personalities that they're really portrayed as larger than life caricatures right but mm-hmm. they weren't so far off that the audience isn't able to relate to them so there are these caricatures in the in the namesake of theater but also, no, you would – That that's totally my mother kind of thing. You know what I mean? Like mm-hmm. if – I I might not be making sense, but if someone were like, no, there's no way a family is like that, it's like, oh, my gosh, then you must come over for Sunday dinner. And, you know, there's that running joke that I've seen on sitcoms where it's like, mom, can I bring you to my therapist? They don't believe that you're real. Mm-hmm. You're going to – we all laugh at the idea that there's no way a family is this dysfunctional. But at the same time, no, we all know. If you don't know a family that's that dysfunctional, I have news for you. You are that family that's <laughs> the dysfunctional. You know what I mean? Like, it, it comes from a place of truth. And so that's what I love, that even though they're playing these big caricatures because it's a theater, it's not off like far off that that mark for what you would really see in this situation or in the story, whether they're at a hospital or at a, a, a wake, or, you know, the Shiva or what have you, like that, that is some real stuff. And that's what I appreciated that Larry David didn't mute it. Yeah. And none of the characters' personalities, because it wasn't just in the dialogue, it was also in the body language, especially. Jane Howdy Shell's facial expressions, I mean...
1: Right. Well, and I think that leads more towards, you know, the actors in the direction taking the text. Um, But, you know, I think let's go ahead and just I think this sounds like a great time to go ahead and break up into
0: our boxes.
1: Yes. Let's break it up into our little boxes.
0: So starting with our set. So I remember. I remember three of the main sets when I put on my. My my fortune teller's hat and try to remember, uh, but the three main sets I remember are the hospital, the wake or the shiva, whatever we're calling it, and then Drexel's apartment. And I remember they were all kind of similar, uh, particularly the shiva and Drexel's apartment. And I actually think they might have been at the, that; those two might have been actually at the same place. I think the wake. No, the wake was at mom's house. But I digress. They had, it was very, um, upper east side feeling. Like with the, um, glass paneled doors that led to the balcony or to the patio and moldings, these moldings on the walls and the pillars, great carpet, nice furniture. You know what I mean? Like it felt very, um, Upper East Side. It was simple, but there were these details that just let you know that, you know, these people obviously came from money. Every th- There was money to be had. And the only set that... E- even the hospital set gave off this... Um, dare I say developed feeling of it? You know what I mean?
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Um, but the biggest thing that stands out in my mind... Um, well, the two things is that the set dressing was incredibly detailed.
1: Yes, and, it was very detailed.
0: I mean, very, very detailed. You know, in the hospital, there were lots of flyers and posters and cups here and there. Like, it was incredibly detailed to let us know that other people were there, but even if we didn't see them. But going back to even the places, you know, the Drexel apartment obviously looked clean but lived in. And then the one I'm mainly thinking of is the Shiva, the, the wake that table of food, oh my gosh, lots of kosher cuisine. Particularly, I remember... The bagels? Holy bagels and pastrami sandwiches. The huge pile in the center of bagels, and then this huge platter of pastrami sandwiches. And I thought, of course that's what's going to be at a Jewish wake. Like, uh-huh. you know, I, the, it just... It, the, these are the Easter eggs that you would find if you... If you had that extra knowledge into the culture or into the geog- geographic culture. Do you know what I mean? Yes. Um, so it felt real and livable and it it felt like we really were just hopping on the train and going up to an Upper East Side apartment from the theater. So should we move on to costumes? Definitely.
1: Definitely. Um, I mean, first off, I just want to say I absolutely adore Ann Roth's costume design. I agree. She takes so many little things into detail that you would never know unless you saw the process. Um, and so, obviously, the clothing was very, I mean, it was very natural. It was very, like, this is what these people would wear.
0: Um, yeah, again, it was very upper middle class Upper East Side. Mm-hmm. These people, it, it didn't give off the the feeling that they were very, very wealthy. You know, they weren't the Rockefellers. But also it's like, eh, they don't want for nothing. You know? And there was obviously a lot of black. I mean, we're dealing with death. Right. So we had a lot of black going on. Um, but in the moments where there was color, this is what I appreciate about Anne Roth's costumes um the whole show is surrounded by death and secrets and and you know just things that are hidden from each other right so it's not even though it's a comedy it's not like a joyous comedy if that makes sense uh-huh. um, it's a dark comedy and in her designs anytime we did have color it was a muted color so that doesn't necessarily mean that all the colors were like darker It's just that they weren't, like, neons or really popping. One of the colors that comes to mind is, like, this... Is it fuchsia? Jane, Jane as the mother, is in this, like, purplish-pink top, but it's a darker top. Yeah. And that might be the brightest color that happens. Or... Rosie Perez, who plays um, the, the housekeeper, whose name is now escaping me, Fabian. uh, Fabiana, she's in a leopard print shirt. But even that doesn't read as, again, as popping. It still feels muted amongst everything. And it just keeps it there. In my opinion, it, it mirrors the humor where we have these moments of comedy, but everything is still kind of dark. Should right. we really be laughing at these subjects? But we are. You know what I mean?
1: Right. Well, and even for me, one of the most brilliant parts of Ann Roth's design is the choice of textures and shape for the people to tell you a lot more about their personality. Yes. Um. Because like Rosie Perez is in a like a T length, if not knee length, um, you know, dress that's tight in it's very you know she's voluptuous.
0: Like, she's she's showing off all of her curves and everything where everybody else is boxy and, yes and and even the men kind of look like they're in dad suits they're not wearing um uh fitted suits or anything there's nothing um mm-hmm. fitted uh, uh tailored tailored is the word i'm looking for no one's in tailored clothing except for rosie perez
1: right well and it's just yeah it's very it it's each silhouette of the character says something else about them, which I just think is brilliant.
0: Well, and the thing that I would say that is beautiful about Anne Ross' costume design in that sense is everyone else except Fabiana is hiding something underneath, right? hmm These secrets, and that's why they have much more bulk to them. Where Fabiana, who's in these great tailored clothes, she wears her secret on her sleeve, which is her son. Nobody knows it, but if you just look at... When the secret comes out, which I feel like we should just say the secret. Okay. Um, the father, the two sons' father, Jane's husband, is the father of Fabiana's son, Diego. Mm-hmm. And it's like, if you just look at the kid... You know what I mean? Like that. And they clearly have that moment where are like, no. And they look at him and they're like, well, <laughs> you know what I mean? And I'm like, she wears that secret on her sleeve. It's not something that she's hiding really. Because Diego's everywhere. How can you hide that? The older he gets, the more he's going to start to look like, you know, their dad. Mm-hmm. So, um, I think that was a really smart choice on Anne Ross. Very subtle. You know, tongue-in-cheek, but I think that's... I don't know if that was her intention, but that's an interpretation. Um, moving on to the lights, which the lights were really simple, but we've talked a lot about lighting design in plays. Um, and I know we've covered, obviously, comedies before, but this was a great example of when we've talked about comedies being under bright lights because this was constantly under bright lights, under those bright white lights. hmm Even in the softer, dimmer moments, you know, because one of Jane's complaints about, um, is it Nelson? Larry David's character I'm thinking of. Nelson. Norman. Norman. Thank you.
1: And Gloria Gloria is is Jane's character.
0: Gloria complains about Norman's wife, the Shiksa wife. Brenda. Brenda. Thank you. I'm just horrible with names. (laughs) I'm seeing faces. I'm like, come on, everybody. Get in my head and see the faces. Gloria's complaint about her son's wife is that she never had fish in the dark with us. And I believe that's a reference to a Seder dinner. You know, where they're eating around the candles. And I could be wrong, so if anybody wants to correct me, please do. Um, Fish in the Dark is a play I'm planning to reread again. But I remember that line. She never had Fish in the Dark with us, which is where the play gets its name. Um, But even in those moments, the way the lighting was done, whether it be the angles or whatnot, was harsh, angular... And still bright because it's a comedy, you know? Yeah. We didn't get those softer, rounder touches to it. It was bright. It was white. We hit them hard. We hit them fast, (laughs) you know, Um, as you would expect from a comedy. So uh, if you look at pictures of it, it's just, it's very clear that what, what they were going for. And it was successful for me. We didn't need multiple levels of lighting, if you will. So that leads us to our final box, which is direction, and I thought it was just wonderful. Andy Shapiro did an incredible job, especially when you're working with such a comedic genius as Larry David, who was also starring in the play. He wrote it, starred in it. You know, being able to craft his words and jokes into perfect timing for the stage amongst the entire cast is no short order.
1: Right, and I think that really it is the melding of the words and the direction that really made this play. The success that it was.
0: Yeah, the pacing was brilliant, and I'm gonna try to make this part make sense. I I wrote this note down, and in my head I can see it. So I gotta make it make sense. But the rise and fall of the action, and then the continued raising of the stakes was fantastic. So basically, we had these small like skirmishes. So we'd rise, and then we fall, and we rise even bigger, and then we fall. Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. The things just kept... The waves kept getting higher and higher. We snowballed. Yes, but we also came down... like The play was breathing, but it was perfect in that sense. It was almost a great demonstration of, oh, it can't get much worse. This has to be the worst it can get. And then it was like 2020 opening the door being like, oh, hey, wait a minute. You know, storming back in. And another thing, you know. Um, So I thought that was... Great on, obviously, Larry's part in writing it, but for Anne Shapiro to be able to take that and be like, okay, we got to pace this just right so that we get this build-up and then we can also get this release so that the next build-up is even bigger. Mm
1: -hmm.
0: That's just... Comedy is not something you really can be taught, but it has to be felt, and for someone to be able to just mold that amongst such a huge cast and everything... That's perfect, especially because I want to just point out there's a missing factor in all of this that they don't get until closer to opening, which is the audience. So you spend all this time in rehearsal setting up pacing and everything, and then all of a sudden you get an audience here, and you might have a rolling laugh for a long time that interrupts that pacing, and you've got to be able to get everything back on track so that it sets up everything. So between- it's that
1: It's that fine line of being able to feed off the audience while also giving the audience
0: what they need. Right. And so I thought that was, you know, kudos to both the actor and the director for being able to be like, I, reading the script, I think we need to have, you know, pause for laughter here or what have you. Um, The truisms and stereotypes that were applied were also wonderful. You know, they were somewhat borderline offensive, but again, they come from a very real place. You know, I... I am not advocating for stereotypes or hateful tropes at all. But at the same time, as the late, great Del Close says, the truth is funnier than a lie. You know, the truth in comedy. There's nothing funnier than
1: the truth. Thank you. There's nothing
0: funnier than the truth. There's a reason why we are laughing at these different personalities and what they're saying and how they're acting. And it's not necessarily because we're like, Oh, I've always been taught because that's the way it is and that's funny. There's an element of truth to that. We've witnessed that, you know what I mean? And that's what we're laughing at. We're all having this collective experience of either we've this is our life or we've actually experienced that on the street or something like that. And that, like, with me, that's what killed me. Is I was like, "Oh my God, I've actually heard my parents say these words." Oh my God, my brother and I have had this conversation. You know what I mean? Yeah. It's incredible. And and you and you're left sitting there going, "How does someone know that? <laughs> How did someone get into my family's Thanksgiving dinner and just write down what was said?" So I like that the director pushed that boundary. Right up to the line of like, you can't say that. Or you can't do that. Took it just to the point where we were uncomfortable enough to laugh at it. Or, excuse me, laugh with it. Not at it. Does that make sense? Yes, that does. Um, And finally for me, I love how zany and borderline caricature caricature things got. But again, they still remained... Real.
1: Well, and the 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 humor came from authentic feelings. Yeah. And that is something that I
0: appreciate. When there were these meltdowns or these moments of passion explosion or what have you, it didn't feel theatrical. You know, it was like, yeah, no, that would happen at a wake That that would definitely happen at this point. I it. Like you said, Larry David wrote for Seinfeld, right? Mm-hmm. And there was a lot of things in Seinfeld. I remember hearing people who either weren't a big fan or now they're just watching it. They're like, that would never happen, though. And I'm like, oh my gosh, no, that would totally happen. That's one of the reasons why Seinfeld was so successful is, yeah, these are this is a real thing. You could really see horrible people like that. They do exist. And so when we're watching this and we're watching this horrible train wreck at times you're like that can never happen it's like oh yes it could just you wait just absolutely you mix the right things in the right oh yeah TikTok wasn't around yet but let me tell you we would have a field day with that you know
1: the show has had several notable performers including jason alexander rita wilson rosie perez jane howdy shell and larry david oh.
0: So let's now talk about the impact the show has had on the theater and its history. Starting with theatrical impact. This was Larry David's debut as a playwright. And I certainly hope not his last because I I do love Larry David's writing. Um, So that was a huge impact. And also, um, I want to, I guess, modify what we said earlier. Um, but this was the highest advanced sales for a spring play in Broadway history. Yeah. I think um, there were other musicals that have come along that have taken in er, you know, more ticket sales. Though I'd have to really dig deep on that. But I still think that's impressive. $13.5 million for a play. Like,
1: right. The fact that it was a play at the court that sold the balcony.
0: Right. Well, and, and, and just to bring them that amount of money ahead of time for a play is amazing because I would love to know what the overall production costs were on that show. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean?
1: Definitely. And I think beyond that, there's not much of a theatrical impact.
0: No, it it may have added another story to Jewish theater perhaps, but I would like to sit with someone who is a little more learned in that field to ask them, does this qualify as? Because it's about a Jewish family. Does that qualify it as... Being a part of Jewish theater, so if anyone out there is well versed in Jewish theater, would love to know where we land on that. But moving on societal impact, uh, in my opinion, these are my opinions, and I'll stand by them. Uh, I thought it brought to the stage real families that audiences could identify with, uh, and it put forth real social situations that modern families, particularly modern New York Jewish families, were or could face um there is a reason why the play played as long as it did and 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 had the impact that it did and i don't think it was just larry david or jason alexander or jane howdy you know what i mean it was a good story and where did the story come from it's not a a one and done you know it's not baby jessica in the well this Obviously was relatable. And I mean. How many times have we heard about. Uh, this kind of situation where a father. Has sired a child. Out of wedlock with the housekeeper.
1: Right. I mean you know my favorite term to use. For father to child. Outside of marriage or wedlock. Sire. Is no, no, no. Is to call them uh, a surprise sibling. <laughs> that's, wow. <laughs> that's uh, a, a close friend of mine. That's. Her father lived a very high and large life, and I really think that someday she should write a play about his life. But he, um, yeah, she's like, yeah. And then next thing I knew, I had a surprise sister.
0: Wow.
1: <laughs> Didn't That's know fair. about
0: her. So, so yeah, so this story comes from a real place. And I think audiences here, particularly here in New York, were really like, oh, my gosh, yeah, We, I know the story. My best friend just did it, you know.
1: I think this story, the fact that this story was written... Um, when it was it precursed things that would come out because of 23 Me yes. and DNA testing yes. where everyone started DNA testing and we're like oh this happens a lot more than I thought it did
0: yes so I guess it's now time to ask the the million dollar question of is the show still relevant this show is hilarious let me be absolutely clear about that it's absolutely a side spitting gas and with that it's perfect for regional and community and even to some extent collegiate theater yeah you got the right casting in a collegiate setting cool beans but as for broadway this is a pass for me i think off broadway it could see some great success but i think the story's not relevant for now and there's just more important stories and different playwrights that need to be showcased on the Broadway stage at this moment. So I'm, I'm, I vote no.
1: I agree. I don't think that it's necessarily relevant for a Broadway stage at this point in time. But that doesn't mean it can't be performed other places. We wanted to share some of our own personal stories about experiencing the show.
0: We had the good fortune of getting to see the show once in 2015. And we've got a few memories attached to this. And the first one I remember is this was our first Friday matinee.
1: Yeah, it was. I remember being very thrown off the entire time about it, but yeah, we had had just had
0: a Thursday matinee. Now you're having literally the next day, Friday matinee. It was so
1: weird, but I was game for it.
0: This was an epic summer because we essentially had two show days Thursday, Friday, Saturday, Sunday, eight shows. Well, I guess Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, Sunday. So that's what, 10 shows in a row? That was a 12 show week for us. Mm-hmm. Get it. Yes. But yeah, so first Friday, Matt Name, laughing the entire show, which was great. Um, and the meeting the cast afterwards was amazing. We briefly got to meet uh, Jason Alexander. He came out real quick, signed picture. But I remember Rosie Perez was really nice, fabulous. Uh, Fabulous human being, sign, wonderful picture. And then, of course, this is the first time we, meet, we met Jane Howdy Show.
1: Yeah. The first
0: of many. And, and lo and behold, you would end up working with Jane at the Music Man. And oh, she's a wonderful, she's a national treasure.
1: She's a very nice lady.
0: Yes, she is. She's a wonderful woman. So I love that this is where our story with her begins.
1: You'll be able to catch fish in the dark. Hopefully at a theater near you sometime soon.
0: We also want to remind you that you can now become a producer and patron of the show by getting your backstage pass or by leaving a monthly tip in our tip jar.
1: Information about our backstage pass can be found at patreon.com slash stagewhisperpod.
0: So until next time, I'm Andrew Cortez. And I'm Hopebird. Reminding you to turn off your cell phones... Unwrap your candies and keep your mask on. And keep talking about the theater.
1: In a stage whisper. Thank you. If you like what you hear, please leave a five-star review,
0: like, and subscribe. You can also find us on Facebook and Instagram at StageWhisperPod.
1: And feel free to reach out to us with your comments and personal stories at StageWhisperPod at gmail.com.
0: Our theme song is Fox by Music for Wildlife. Other music on this episode provided by John Bartman and Billy Murray.